Because I think with anything, with anything, any generation, there's always been some form of personality test. There's been generational divides. And it's all about putting people in boxes. And that just further creates a divide because we're, we're not machines. We're not made to be put in boxes. Goose Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's Caitlin King, a consultant at Goose Creek Consulting who has experience working with, managing, training people over multiple generations. Caitlin uses her experience in human resources as a recruiter, as a leadership development and organizational development consultant, and even as a university resident assistant to bring a unique perspective to leading people over multiple generations. Today, we're going to be focusing on the impact of generational shifts on the workplace. We're going to discuss some of the challenges and some of the gifts of intergenerational differences in the workplace today. This is a moment where there are basically four generations still collaborating together in organizations across the world, eliminating some of that friction and getting some of those benefits, valuing those differences is really critical to diversity and inclusion, but also to our success in the future. So Caitlin, thanks for coming on. You and I have a lot in common, one of which is uh, that we both attended Liberty University. I only made it one semester at Liberty, but you made it all four years. But one of the things that I learned in my short time at Liberty is that Liberty has some of the best resident assistants in the country. You know, in fact, other universities would call Liberty RAs to sort of train their resident assistants. And I was wondering, just to kind of start us off, you know, what do you think you learned about leadership from being a resident assistant? Definitely. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me today. Uh, this is something that I'm very passionate about talking about. And it's a answering that question. I've asked, been asked that a few times. And it's hard to narrow it down to just one thing. But I think that one of the biggest for sure that I learned was humility. Hmm. There's a lot of pride in becoming a leader, especially at such a young age. Um, and at Liberty, the process of selection was super rigorous. It was a three-month multi-step process to even get to become a, an RA. So, you know, having that at a young age, leading a hall, going through that process, it's easy to fall into that trap of the prideful thinking of, I know what's best, I'm the best, what I say goes, only my perspective matters, I was chosen as a leader after this whole, whole long process, so you have to do what I say. But your pride gets stopped down pretty quickly uh, once you mm-hmm. actually go from being selected to actually leading. And, you know, as it should, like, I think you should be confident in the work that you did, but you shouldn't let that block your actual process as a, a, a leader. And I truly believe that pride has no place in the heart of a leader. Uh, you can be proud of your accomplishments and then you can be confident in your abilities, but having pride is so damaging. That's an interesting point because I've always said that one of the most important lessons in life for me out of the sort of tough things I've been through is that they've been humbling and that they've made me a better person, you know, that I probably wouldn't have liked the person that I would have become without that. And one of the things about working in the leadership development field that I've realized is that, you know, what followers want from their leaders, they want a couple different things. They want integrity. They want to be able to trust what you say. They want to know that you're competent. They want to know that you have good judgment. They want to know that you have ambition for the success of the team. But one of the most important things they want to know is that you have humility. And I've always thought that for humility, it requires an immense amount of self-awareness at the minimum. But what are the qualities that you think make someone a humble leader? You can't just pin down for each person. It just really depends. But I think one thing that you absolutely need to have is mercy and grace, not just with yourself, but with those that you're leading as well. Don't just assume that you know everything, that you already have the answers already. Mm. 
So you need to have those qualities in order to, you know, give grace to yourself, say, admitting, I don't know everything. I'm going to mess up. That's going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. It's just about how much you mitigate that, you know, that mistake. And once you have that grace with yourself and know that it's okay that you mess up, you're able to extend that to the others around you. There's able to be a middle ground, that barrier that's knocked down. So it's letting go of some of that perfectionism, mm-hmm. you know, that I have to be perfect. And because I have to be perfect, other people have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think for sure, like what you mentioned as well, integrity is a big thing because they needed the trust that you are going to do what you say, that you're going to do what you teach, that you're following the same rules and holding yourself to the same standard that you're holding them. So I think integrity, grace, mercy, those are some core qualities that leaders need to have. And it's, it's interesting. I know we're talking about intergenerational things, but, you know, my gut, and I might be wrong here, is that those things like integrity and humility, that doesn't change across generations. Maybe how much people focus on it in terms of their behaviors, but the need for it from people is not something that's changed. You know, if you jump back at different moments in U.S. history, you know, things like the Vietnam War or, you know, you can see that like part of the challenges there were a lack of humility and a lack of integrity. And, you know, you look at other things like the Civil Rights Movement or any big thing that what we've really wanted from our leaders is um, humility and integrity. But one of the things that stands out to me is that once people get older, they, they it seems like they you sometimes forget what other people need. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, because once you get older, you get, if you're not careful, you know, I'm not going to say this is for everyone, but as you get older, you kind of get more set in your ways and it kind of becomes, you know, this is how I've survived this long. This is what I've done to make sure that my days uh, to the best that it could be or my family or whatever. And so because you're stuck in that way, it's kind of harder to, I mean, that's why they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's harder to break out of that and look around to those you know around you or anything that has changed which is a big part of that divide that's going on right now is that intergenerational divide because there's there's that friction and fission between the generation that says i've been there i know what works how to do it and there's this new generation that's saying we understand that you know but there we don't have to just do this because it's the only way that's worked we don't have to just you know, we can think outside the box. And so they just keep butting heads. Um, and it's not just with baby boomers versus Gen Z. This has been any older generation to the the new generation. You know, it's, it's a repeating process. Yeah. And so I think with that, you know, pride goes in, when you have a lot of accomplishments in life, when you've gotten far in life, pride comes with it. But we just need to remember that having that humility, because humility lets you ask those questions to understand more, but pride causes you to assume that you know the answers already. So why on earth would mm. you open to, you know, learning something new if you already have all the answers? And so I think that kind of goes to the point with what you're saying, that the older generation doesn't really think that far outside of what they already know. Yeah, what their present experience is. So I, I was thinking about what you were saying about being a resident assistant and the humility and pride. What happened to the, because, you know, I knew from what you've told me that you, you know, you worked with other resident assistants, you worked with resident directors, you, you know, were involved in a number of pieces of the process. What happened to the resident assistants who couldn't demonstrate that humility or where that pride took over? Mm, (laughs) Well, I've seen two different cases of it. And it just really goes to show that no matter where you're at, the process is going to be flawed because anywhere you go, there's going to be people in power that should not be in power. And so there were some RAs and I'm not saying this because I have no fault. Obviously I made a lot of mistakes, but there were RAs that I've had heard from, you know, different students that they were not following the rules themselves, but they were strict on the students or they just weren't there for the students or they weren't upholding all the areas that they need to be. And some stayed in power and they graduated. Others, they're resident directors who is, you know, the direct line of supervision for RAs. They would, you know, set them aside and say, I don't think this is working out. Maybe you should step down or let's work on this. The first step is always let's work on this. Where's the divide? What is this an integrity issue that can't be fixed or is this an issue that can be fixed? But 
for the most part, we have a lot of check-ins with our RDs, but you know, some people slip through the cracks. You're going to have bad leaders anywhere you go, and that's just part of life. So some of the RAs did just stay in power, and their hall suffered for it. Um, yeah. The students, I mean, they got the pretty the pretty certification on their resume that shows, hey, I was an RA, but when it goes much further than that, what did they actually get from it? Because I think once you put your pride aside, as like I said, that's when you really grow. And so they may not have gotten the most out of their experiences they could have because they just didn't go the extra mile or had too much of that pride. And I think you're actually hitting on a really important point. We reward people for their accomplishments, right? And that people accomplish things and accomplish things. And along the way, you begin to think that failure is a bad thing. But in reality, like, you know, loss and failure where we have the greatest opportunity to grow the most. So I was going to ask you another question. So, you know, increasingly in the discussions about generational differences, uh, you know, it's really fit into uh, the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, I remember when I was uh, at the New York Times and I was working as a reporter, talking to an editor about diversity, and the conversation basically went a bit like this. He was like, look around here. And, you know, I was like, what do you mean? He said, you know, there are lots of Ivy League white males. And he made the point that diversity was more than just sort of the color of skin or your gender, but also sort of getting people who came from all sorts of different places. And one of the examples he gave is, you know, like when we go to a place like Appalachia, we can't relate to people who are there. So maybe our diversity focus should be on finding, you know, the poor kid in Appalachia who can contribute or finding people who are younger for the environment. And that really, that conversation really, really struck me because the point he was making is uh, for the times to become more diverse, it needed to bring in younger people, bring in people from different backgrounds and experiences, or ultimately the institution would be doomed. Um, so I was wondering from your perspective, you know, what do you think some of the benefits we talk often, and you made this point, I think about wisdom, but what do you think the benefits of sort of being younger in a work environment, what do you think it it can contribute or it can add to the diversity or the inclusion in a workplace? I mean, I think it could add a quite a lot just for the first half of what you're talking about as you mentioned like if you're going to be moving to you know the appellation you can't assume to know how they live so you're going to need a representative you know you, you should give the platform to those who they they have the knowledge of that platform so i think that could be one thing for sure but also to the point of hiring younger specifically we're all about growth and the benefit of hiring younger is that they have new and fresh ideas or ways of looking at things Technology is always changing. And right now, I mean, I grew up in the boom of technology. You know, there wasn't smartphones there. I remember when YouTube became a thing. And so we're now just starting to so quickly, the next new thing comes out instead of next year, it comes out next month. And having those uh, newer generation, those younger employees helps you keep up with that. You're not going to get left in behind in the, in the dust. And even right now with the age I'm at, I'm going to be passed by quick by the newest technology out there. So what I'm trying to say is we can give new perspectives on how to do processes or how to change a process to be even more effective, while older generations have more of a, if it's not broke, don't fix it approach. It doesn't have to be broken in order to be improved. And that's one thing I I always love talking about. One example, and you're going to laugh. I love talking about this one uh, when it comes to that. I love to laugh. (laughs) So talking about TikTok, you mention it to anyone older than Gen Z and everyone is going to roll their eyes. And say like, oh, it's just one of those, you know, things that people spend too much time on. And I'm going to admit, even I did. When I first heard about it, I was like, oh, this is just the new fad. It's just, you know. I must be an exception as a Gen Xer because I love TikTok. (laughs) And that's the thing, too. It's like once I got it, I understood. It's fun. It's entertaining. But it's not just one thing. And what I've seen, even just in the past two years, is that so many companies you would have never expected to have a TikTok corporate account have them. And their business has been booming. They took the lead of younger generations and it's paid off. 
Singers are getting record deals. Small companies are turning into Fortune 500 companies. I've even seen attorneys. That's a really uh, great point you're making there because something like TikTok is a great example, just like Instagram before it. It changes the way that we communicate, right? So I grew up at a point where, you know, by the time I got to college, email uh, was becoming the primary way of communicating. But if I'm in an email world right now with working with people who are in the 30-second video world, maybe I can't necessarily communicate with them very well or communicate, you know, internally inside an organization, but even communicate with the audience that I'm trying to reach. And so, you know, that could be a part of, I think, some of what you're getting at with this idea of like bringing in new ideas it's, Does that yeah. make sense? No, that makes complete sense. And, and I would agree with that. There's just each generation is going to have a new focus and you always have to be looking to the future. Yes, look at the past. Don't forget the past or else you'll be doomed to repeat its mistakes, you know, as the saying goes. But if you're looking to grow, you only grow forward. You don't grow by stepping backwards and things that may have worked for previous generations. Like, for example, I was talking with one of my friends about this with missionaries. You don't see door-to-door missionaries anymore, or do it's very rare. Now it's more, you know, through social media, through different avenues. And that's a generational change where nowadays you can't just go door-to-door. People are not going to open their door to a stranger. People are not going to even want to go into a stranger's home. Like it's just that our culture has changed. It's not as safe anymore. It's just not common. It's viewed as strange to show up to people's doors. So these are things that aren't necessarily work examples, but they give you the perfect example of why it's important to have these younger generations and not just sticking them in the back burner and saying, oh, we have them hired, blah, blah, but actually giving them work, giving them not necessarily the senior lead on things, but giving them a voice to give you these examples and these ideas of things that will work, actually listening to them and implementing them and just instead of just saying, I'm going to check this off the box. Yeah. And they're probably great examples of, Caitlin, they're probably like great examples actually of companies that I can think of in listening to what you're saying. You know, IBM has been around since 1911, something like that, 1911. And one of the things about IBM, it has done a wide variety of different things You know, right now it's known as sort of a multinational technology company, and that's what we primarily know it as. But it was actually started as like a computing sort of tabulation and recording company. And over time, it's evolved so many in so many different ways. And part of its culture was evolving to the times. But then you look at other companies like, let's say, Blockbuster, right, versus Netflix, They didn't pick up on the trend that, hey, people want to watch and they want to stream or they want the convenience of things being delivered to them or even a MySpace or Toys R Us not going online. Um, What do you think are the things that could leave companies today behind in terms of both in terms of working with their workforce and also uh, in the competitive marketplace? I think like just with those examples, not listening to what the customers want, not seeing where the trends are going. I don't know if it's if it's because there's a fear of the unknown, of the fear of expanding past what they already know for sure has worked in the past, or if it's just out of stubbornness of, I don't want it to be that way, so my company's not going to be that way. Mm, well, then your company's not going to be growing. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes whether it's about being able to predict. People love to be able to predict things. And the easiest way to predict something is to look at the past. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to open your mind to and imagine a future that doesn't follow the rules of uh, what, was, what was in the past. Yeah. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's a younger millennial, um, how old are you right now? You're six. So I'm the, the last end of the millennial. Okay. So you're the tail end of the millennials. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who's a younger millennial, who's worked for and led sort of older millennials, people who are in Generation Y, and who's also worked with people who are in Generation X and baby boomers, what do you think the biggest sort of generational mindset differences are between between you know, the 
Gen Xers, the millennials, the Gen, Gen Zers? Mm-hmm. The biggest difference I saw was the view of leaders and leadership. So, for example, with my millennial students, but regardless of it, if they're on the older spectrum of millennial or the middle ground, they would listen to and follow my leadership because I was the leader of that hall. Yeah, they might have questions, but their generation grew up with a lot of leaders being portrayed and glorified in media. So even in high school, juniors and seniors were put on a pedestal. However, leaders didn't really inspire much to younger generations who grew up with more individualistic values that were being glorified in media and growing up with so many leaders falling from grace in media. So to those younger generations, those Gen Zs, to them, it's all about each individual leading their own change and knocking down the structures and barriers. So everyone wants to be their own leader of change. I was getting questioned a lot more as a resident assistant, the rules being changed or boundaries being pushed. It wasn't until I brought them into the reasoning for the rules or helped them understand the importance of the bigger picture that they would actually start following them. So Uh, so you had to lead those groups very, very differently. You had to adapt your style to the different groups. Is that fair? Yes, that's exactly it. I felt like the younger generation needed to have their own stake or interest in the rules or the reasoning for things in order for them to actually go ahead with them. They weren't just going to respect me just because I was a leader. They weren't just going to follow me just because, you know, they want to know why. So that the biggest mindset difference I saw was just the leadership style because communication is the same regardless of what platform it's on. Right. But um, so, yeah, the, there was little changes here and there, but that leadership mindset was definitely the biggest. So how were you able to shift? Because a lot of, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of leadership books, you know, servant leadership, this kind of agile leadership. And I think people sort of get in their idea, get in their head, like, this is the way to be a leader. But it sounds like what you're saying is that an important part of leadership, particularly leadership across generations, is being able to adapt your style to what either the group of people need or what the individual needs. And I I think about the first time that we ever worked together, it wasn't really a generational thing, but one of the things that we talked about was your style of working, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were able to be open about the way that you worked, we were able to adjust the way that we worked together so you could be most effective. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, just based on what you're saying, is maybe some of the idea is that leaders need to be able to shift to the audience and, you know, send the same message, get to the same goals, but use a different approach and respect, you know, that, the the differences. Exactly. Because without the people, you're not a leader. You're leading the people. So the people, the people, your customer essentially, and yeah, you shouldn't give up completely and do whatever they want. You should still have, okay, this is the end goal. We're all reaching forward. I'm just the one leading the charge. But you, if you do it just your way, you leave your people behind. They're in the dust. They're, they don't know where to go. They are starting a rebellion, whatever it is, if you're not le- listening to them. And so that's the difference between me being just another student on the hall and me being their leader. I'm their spokesperson. I'm the person they can come. Like, yes, I have the traditional, I'm there for their emotional, their mental, their academic, whatever help and health. But the biggest part outside of the job description is that I'm their spokesperson. I'm helping them succeed in their journey on living on a dorm, on being a college student, on all these things. And so if I'm not listening to what they want, I'm not a leader. I'm just, I'm just a dictator. And so I think that's one thing a lot of people don't realize with being a leader, you have all these books on how to be the perfect leader. And it's like, make your bed at 5 a.m. Right. And it's all things that you do, but it's never listen to what your people want. What is the best way to get them to their goal? Well, so you made a, you made a really good point before I thought about how, you know, people get set in their ways or, you know, they change in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking across generations um, when I was, uh, growing up, I'm, you know, in Generation X, when we were young, we were really considered rebels, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we were viewed as a generation that sort of valued diversity, valued technology. You know, we really cared about being practical. We were way more informal. And, you know, we we wanted to focus on being flexible and work-life balance. 
and and that at the time that was not seen necessarily as a positive among everyone. Um, but you know, I hear some of the negative things that are said about millennials, and you know, I laugh sometimes because I'm like, those are the exact same negative things. The things you're saying right now about millennials are the exact same things people said about us. And now, increasingly, I hear millennials who you know complained about complained about uh, us Gen Xers doing it to them, saying the same things about Generation Y. So, you know, do you think that we're really all that different or do we just get older? And I meant Generation Z, but do we just get older, sort of change and see, you know, see our younger selves, right, in the form of the next generation as abnormal or off course, even though that's just sort of what we were like. They're just building on what what we had done, but yet for some reason we're, we're rejecting it or reacting strangely to it. Mm-hmm. I think that is a very good question. I think it's a little bit of both. Because while I think that we all share same values and interests, each generation gets a little bit closer to that finish line than the next when it comes to pushing those changes. So the generation that valued hard work over work-life balance, that valued the American dream and nuclear family, was very much still in power and control of things the last two generations. So it was harder to push against it instead of just giving up that dream. Because as we grow older, we're told those are just childish or idealistic wishes, but this is how the real world works. But I think- and, and that's actually a really great point because that generation probably says to you, hey, you know, we began the first wave of feminism. We stopped the Vietnam War you know, we passed the civil rights bill and they sort of feel this sense of accomplishment. We've moved the ball forward and we're comfortable with the ball being right here. Then the next generation is like, no, 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 no. We need to move the ball even forward. And uh, it eventually moves in outside of someone's comfort zone, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I I think each generation, as they get further from the older generation that believe that, are believing that a little less. And I think millennials and now Gen Z are taking up enough of the workforce that they are changing it finally. Um, Just in the last few years, we've realized that a strict eight to five isn't needed for every job or company. We don't need to have to work from the office always. We're realizing that work life is not one size fits all and it can be customized for each company and employee without giving up that efficiency and profit. And like we talked about before, as technology grows and develops in new generations, it's easier to change the processes more. Do you think that uh, the COVID pandemic accelerated some of that change? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, we already saw some changes with the work from home because uh, I saw some, it was a trend starting where businesses were renting out their office spaces to, as an extra, you know, um, lane of revenue. But I think having us forced to work from home showed a lot of other people that were more than naysayers about that new business model that, oh, we actually can work from home. We actually don't have to work eight straight hours sitting at our desk doing nothing. We can get up and put me in that bucket, by the way, because (laughs) before the pandemic, I was convinced if you would talk to me a month before and you had said, hey, let's do one day remote work per week. I would have been like, "Uh, no, 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 no. There's some (laughs) people who know how to work remotely, other people who don't. And the pandemic proved to me in the first two months, this can be done really well. Mm -hmm. It can be really beneficial to people's lives. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, even so, even now, as we're moving that, the important aspect is that these companies now see that it's customized per person. Some people still work better from home and they have that flexibility now to work from home, while others, they have the choice to work in office because they work in office better. I was one who up until last year, I worked better from home, but it wasn't until this this past year that I realized okay, I'm changing, I'm growing. I The work that I'm doing now, I would do better in office, but I have to have that balance. You know, like we have here at Goose Creek, we have Mondays and Fridays in off, or at home, and that helps me get all the stuff I need to get done throughout the day that I'm not able to do. Like, you know, laundry, all of that. I can do that while sitting in a meeting. It actually helps me focus more to be able to do something idly with my hands. Whereas I know because I have those two days where I can, put my focus on work from home and doing other things that I know that those three days that I'm in office, I'm like hardcore focusing on, on those. And that's just how I work best. But the important thing here that I'm getting at is that we've made that change to where I have that option. 
I have that option to explore what works best for me and how I give my best work. Because ultimately, it's better for the employers because the more that you work with your employees on what how they produce more work or better work, the better results you're getting as a company, the more you're growing. So I think to sum up what you asked, I think isn't necessarily that we're so different generation to generation. I just think that older generations had too much pushback because baby boomers were still holding a huge part of the workforce. And there's still a big a big amount of them that haven't retired yet. But as they get filtered out more, I know that sounds kind of dark, but as they retire more and the younger generations come in, we're pushing that ball closer to the finish line. We're realizing, no, it doesn't have to be this way. We can be idealistic with this world. You know, Right around though, right? We're talking about how like as generation Xers grew older, you know, they have this they probably changed, they had this negative reaction. How do you think millennials can keep from doing that to uh the generations that come between them? And by doing that, I mean like resisting change, because a lot of what you're talking about in terms of you know, you were talking about this idea that it struck me, it's really about flexibility, you know, Mm -hmm. pushing for change, pushing for flexibility. And, you know, in the future, 20, 30 years from now, you know, you may be able to, instead of have a computer, you may be able to, I don't know, type on a microchip in your brain. And some people may not be comfortable with people doing that. How do we sort of as organizations, as millennials are taking more leadership role, how do we keep them from doing to the generations coming behind them what was done to them, undervaluing their mm-hmm. their their desire for change and other things like that. Is there sort of a prescription for that that you could think of? I just think just remembering, you know, we were the Gen Z at some point. You know, we were the youngest generation. And these are ideas that we had that worked. You know, we, we pushed the bill on things. We're in that technology boom, but not getting stuck there. Just remember it. And like I said, going back to my original point, just, you know, having humility, knowing that just because you're older and you've been in the workforce longer doesn't necessarily mean that you are more wise, you're, you know, you're wiser or you hold more. You well, there's that saying it. too, right? Like there's no one wiser than a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the questions that children ask, they'll af- often ask a question, you know, why do you do X? And uh, the adults will sit in the room and be like, that's a really good question. I'm not sure why we do it. So I'm not entirely convinced that age and wisdom are always correlated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm not. I I, I I, would agree with that. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that when you're wiser, you're, or when you're older, you're wiser, because, you know, you can get stuck in your way. But also, yeah. I will say to the, like, I, you can't put people in a box, you can't put generations in a box. So there are some younger people that lack critical thinking there are some older people that lack critical thinking and that just don't you know but i just with that the saying of you know older means wiser i don't i don't subscribe to that and i also think in tying that back to what you were saying before i think what you're really saying is that leaders should look at the person in front of them Mm -hmm. not necessarily the way that the leader has done it and not necessarily looking at them and putting a generational label at the, on them, but really looking really at the actual person in front of you. So mm-hmm. sort of like looking at the whole person is a good approach. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that, um, you know, like the experiences of sort of baby boomers, you know, those in Generation X, millennials, those in Generation Z have been super different, right? At least in America. You know, the baby boomers lived through World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War. Most of their lives were, that was wrapped wrapped around that was the Cold War. And then for the people like me who are in Generation X, we grew up in sort of a time of peace, economic prosperity. And millennials actually had a very different experience. They came out of college in the middle of sort of economic crisis, like the 2008 financial crisis. You know, they grew up, Uh, with wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, along with Generation Z, they spent their sort of part of their early career in the middle of a um, worldwide uh, pandemic. How do you think, uh, like, our collective experiences as a generation, the things that we go through, 
you know, impact how we show up at work and also how we view work? I think it's clear in the values between each generation that clearly the experiences have shaped our view of the importance of work, but also the importance of the fulfillment in life. And that is kind of what feeds into work. So I think while they're older generations, you know, the Generation X and baby boomers, they had seen such horrors. You know, they had gone to war. They Everything was put on pause. No matter what you did that contributed to the war effort, whether that be, you know, I think Mary Kay, there's a book on why makeup was so important during World War One and Two. So even from the door-to-door mm-hmm. sales to, you know, uh, Ford Motors, you know, supplying war trucks and stuff like that, everything was so focused on our life is work. Everything we do is pushing our life. That um, is our support. service to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, Generation X, obviously there was a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of change that was pushed. Like you said, they were viewed as the rebels. There was all these protests, everything that they, there started to be more enjoyment in life. Again, there was more, you know, music was always a big part of, of, you know, generations as they go, but specifically more, I feel like it was more positive. There was more enjoyment there. People were enjoying life again. And then millennials, they come back and right as they are in kindergarten, first grade, whatever terrorism on the United States soil for the first time that changes the world, you know, changes everything. It changes, you know, our experience at at the airport. It changes our experiences going into buildings. Everything was shook that day. We had not necessarily a moment. Yeah, I can still remember when I could get into high security buildings with a clipboard and a pen and a Mm -hmm. stiff lock and people would just let me by. Yeah. And I mean, specifically like my family, I remember when everything was going on with one 9-11 and then two anthrax. My mom was terrified of having any of us open the mail um, or do anything like that. Like it was just this fear was constantly there. And Mm. so why we didn't push back fully into that baby boomer mindset of every single thing we do um, at work feeds into life. So you can't have life unless you work. There was still, there was now more of that. Okay. How do we get this done most efficiently? We need to build patriotism up more. We need to do, you know, something. Mm. Kind of going back to that in some ways, that world war two mindset that work is an opportunity for service. Mm -hmm. But more so like we had because of the, influence of generation x there's still that you know you could have fun but i think now i think generation z and you can even see it in their humor they're just so sick of it. one tragedy after the next they lived through covid you know they grew up mm-hmm. in a world with terrorism and seeing all this you know all this bad stuff that they're like you know there's more to life than just work i want to enjoy the time i have the world is dark enough as it is you know let's let's do the most that we can for ourselves for our enjoyment for you know mental health became a bigger push it's kind of interesting, actually, if you think about it, and I definitely want to grab that point about mental health. And, you know, the younger millennials are the children of uh, Generation X, right? And we grew up in this time of peace and prosperity. And Generation X is the last generation, at least that, in terms of their predictions, where we continued the American trend of being better off than our parents. And millennials will be the first generation that may not be able to achieve the same, you know, home ownership and wealth and other things along those lines. And I think that impacted them. But I also think a big factor that I've always felt about people who are in my generation, looking around at my peers and colleagues, is that, you know, we had that opportunity to grow and we put these unbelievably high expectations mm-hmm. on our children. We became the helicopter parents. And one of the things, like when you look at research around, you know, one of the most important things is our relationship, our early relationship with our caregivers. And what the research says is that if you live in an environment that is low anxiety, but high involvement from your primary caregivers, you're going to be pretty secure in the world. But if you grow up in an environment that is uh, where your caregivers are involved in your life, but also very anxious, it will lead to additional anxiety for you. So I wonder whether for millennials, it's a generation that had very high expectations of themselves, very high expectations from their parents. And then they just slammed into, you know, things like the financial crisis and all the other things that were going on. And now they have a generation coming up behind them that didn't necessarily go through those things may have that opportunity to do better than their parents again. I wonder whether there's the risk of resentment, you know, uh, 
leaders who are never going to have the opportunities of the people coming up behind them. I mean, just look at, just uh, for example of that, look at this new student loan forgiveness. So mm. much pushback has been through people who are like, well, I didn't have that opportunity. I'm still paying off. And I'm like, why, why wouldn't you want a new generation to have opportunities that you didn't have? You know, why, why is this such an issue that someone else is getting something that you don't, don't you want this to be, get better? Like you've admitted already that this is a problem, that there's a problem. And this is a whole other discussion, but just using this as an example, they've admitted that there's a problem with the student loan institution, with finances when it comes to tuition in general and different colleges, expenses, they've admitted it's a problem. So why are they attacking the person that's getting something? Why aren't they, again, taking that, why aren't they, you know, attacking the institution that they just have been hating on? So I think there is some there some merit to the, the thought that you have of our previous generations going to feel a little bitter. And I think some might, some may, they, they may be more resistant to to giving into listening to the the newer generation because they never had that opportunity. And so it sounds like, and thinking about everything that you're saying, an important part is being able to get past that mm-hmm. and let go of that. Is that fair? Yes. And that's exactly, you know, back to my first point, you got to be gracious, not just with yourself, but with others. You have to have mercy for yourself or others. You have to leave your pride at the door. Yeah. And not want to take something from someone because you didn't get it. So as somebody who's a younger millennial, what advice would you have for um, those millennials that are increasingly taking those leadership roles, like as they're trying to collaborate with, you know, people who are across many different generations? I would say, listen to the generations uh, before you and below you. And as a leader, seek to understand them. Because as I as mentioned before, that's the job as a leader. It's not to follow and enforce the rules, but to lead the people. And there's this great quote that all the RAs learned in our leadership class at Liberty where it goes, and roughly, this isn't you know um, verbatim, but it says, you shouldn't build the boat for the sailor. You shouldn't even show, the sh- the, show him how to build that boat. You should inspire and encourage the love of the sea in him so he goes even further to build the boat on his own. Uh-huh. And I think that hits the nail on the head of leadership, I think. That and is that, powerful. Yeah, and I remember writing that down like right when I heard it. And I've been used, I've thought about it so much because it's it's not just about the job of building a boat for the sailor. It's a lifestyle that goes into fishing, exploring, production, exportation, so much other stuff than just steering a boat. So you got to think when a sailor has that, his job isn't to sail the boat. It's to get cargo from one place to another, to fish, to do all these things. But in order- and I think there's also sort of a darker side to that because, you know, it, you know, a mother elephant needs to like know where the watering hole is and point the other elephants to the watering hole, but they don't need to go over there and show the other elephants how to drink. Mm-hmm. And that when you do do that, right, when you uh, build the boat for people, you may be undermining their confidence or sending a message that you don't really trust their ability to, to do things. And I found when I've worked with younger people, people who are younger than me, just me believing in them, having mm-hmm. faith in them can make such an enormous difference for their productivity, for our relationship, for how they fit into organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you think that, that being able to trust across generations, um, trust people to be able to build that boat, do you think that's important? Oh, 100% you need that trust. You need, I mean, how are they, you have to have trust not for your own self, but trust for those that you're leading and those you need to instill trust and those that you're leading to trust you as well. But in order to have that, in order to be able to inspire and lead and trust and develop them, you need to understand them well. You need to know them well enough to know how to inspire and encourage them. And you need to make the effort instead of just being closed off, you go, go to them reach out to them. Don't just, if it's just left up to them, they're not going to feel very inspired if they're having to do all the work. When you as a leader, that's your role. You seek out, you lead. So as millennials coming up, I think understanding that there is a lot you still do not know. Listen mm. to the Gen instead of falling into the trap every single older generation falls into, which is easily dismissing and making fun of the generation below them. Millennials, we should, we should know this because We've been the butt of every older person's joke. And the hilarious thing about that is older generations don't even stop to understand the differences between millennial and Gen Z. So most of the time that they want to make their clever little millennial jokes, roll their eyes up being a millennial, what they're joking at and that behavior that they're making fun at is often attributed to Gen Z. 
or other, another generation. So they're not even, you know, they're making fun, making us the butt of the joke for something that we're not even doing. And I think that is so funny. It's so, it's exactly what I'm saying. It's just reverse instead of inspiring. It's, you know, poking fun at, but they yep. don't even understand the other generation enough to know. And so maybe if you approached it and looked at the value, right? Like instead mm-hmm. of making fun of TikTok or making fun of the independence or desire for change or the desire for flexibility, if you mm-hmm. maybe start from the point, like how, how can my life be improved by that, right? Mm-hmm. As somebody in an older generation and you start to focus, in, focus on values, valuing differences, because I think that's like the, you know, tying back to what we were talking about before, the whole point of diversity and inclusion is taking diverse approaches finding the best in those and um, and being able to leverage them. And one of the things that stuck out to me about what you said, it's very sort of non-traditional for someone who's not a leader to be a change agent, right? You go into most mm-hmm. organizations, your change agents are at the top of your organization. But you mentioned that the folks in Generation Z see themselves as leaders, out of the mm-hmm. box as leaders, and see themselves as change agents you know, and they, they view having those opportunities as like core to actually having equity in the workplace. Like, does Mm -hmm. that present for you any sort of unique challenges or does it provide some opportunities for us? I think both. There's definitely that challenge of them being more combative or resistance, which I mentioned in the, you know, that I had to switch my leadership style to, to challenge that, but it can be a good thing. No leader should be opposed to resistance. If you are, like I said, you're not a leader, you're a dictator. But if everyone wants to be the leader or the one taking charge, there's no one person to follow through with the work. And there's too many hands are in the pie. My favorite employees are the ones who tell me when I'm wrong. They're <laughs> the ones who save me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to be able to. And that's why I said you have to leave your, your pride at the door because you're going to be humbled time and time again. And I think it provides great opportunities, though, when that happens, because there are more willing to take initiative on leading things that they're interested in. We've seen so many marches and petitions and change happening just from this generation being tired of following for the sake of following or following corrupt leaders. So there, it, it's a good thing and a bad thing. And I think I do want to chat. I will go back to what you what you're saying before on how a lot of the change agents we see traditionally are at the top. Mm-hmm. I do want to challenge that a bit because I think while they might get responsibility for it and recognition because they're at the forefront, I think a lot of the work comes from their team that mm. they work behind. And I see that like from a tech point of view, you know, you have the developers, you have the architects, and then you have the, you know, business administrators who kind of meet with the client, see what the client wants, and they bring that down to the developers. And then Where if, they might be getting credit for the mm-hmm. being the change agents, but they're not necessarily the ones who are really driving the change. Exactly. So I think those on top are definitely the spokesperson, but I don't think they're necessarily the change agent. I think their team is the ones really pushing And that's why it's important to have a leader or one spokesperson or even like a panel of spokespersons, because like I said, you can't have everyone's hand in the box. Everyone's talking over each other. Everyone, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. But when you have that panel or that person who truly understands what their team wants and is able to accurately speak for them in a way that's not undermining, in a way that's not putting words in their mouth, that's where the change comes. So do you think that like a part of the equation could be that in the same way, if we were running a committee uh, to make a big change in an organization, we want to make sure we have different genders represented. We may want to make sure that we have different races that maybe bringing, regardless of what their higher rank in the hierarchy is, but bringing people from different generations to the table for some of those decisions can add real value. Mm-hmm. So I was curious for you, you know, we've talked a lot about humility. What What's the most uh, humbling experience you've had bleeding? <laughs> uh, I have had many, many humbling experiences. Um, to just narrow it down to one would be... Oh, narrow why narrow through. it to one? Yeah, well, for the sake <laughs> of time, yeah. Uh, I have to think about that one. There's been a, a few times, you know, just on our hall having people ask me questions or ask me why things are done that way. And I had no idea, but even just not on my hall, I remember, you know, being in a classroom and it's not like Liberty is a huge school, 
you can't pinpoint, you don't know everyone who they are. And so not everyone knows, oh, the person sitting next to me in class is an RA. Um, And some people are off-campus students. They don't have to deal with RAs. But I just remember this, I was giving, like, uh, uh, the girl next to me had found out I was an RA. And she was just asking me more about dorm life. And this is when I first became an RA. So I was a lot stricter in the first few months before I quickly got humbled and realized that I don't actually know what I'm doing. But (laughs) they were asking me all these questions. How would you do this? What would you do in this situation? Or what do you believe? Why do you believe that this rule should be part of liberties? The Liberty Way is what we call our charter, basically our Mm -hmm. our rule book. And I, I had no answer because it was like, yeah, I'm leading them just because it's something in the rule book. But do I actually understand why it needs to be this way? No, I'm just, like I said, being a dictator, I don't understand what the hall actually wants. And I realized like a lot less people were showing up to hall events. Um, mm. I'd go door to door and I'm like, why aren't you guys doing these events? Like these are fun events. And it was, you know, well, it doesn't work with our schedule. Well, if mm. you, those aren't ones that we want. That doesn't make sense for us. And so quickly having to take a step back and think, okay, I can't just go on Pinterest and look at fun hall ideas. No, like I actually have to do the work of a leader and critically think through what my hall wants, what makes sense for my hall. And once I did that, once I admitted like, oh, and there's been, you know, so finishing that thought, you know, once I admitted that I was able to actually listen to them, but also. That's a a really interesting point, by the way, Caitlin, you, you, you were saying that there were these hall events, right? Mm -hmm. And that people weren't showing up to them just because that's what they were supposed to do. And that kind of gets to that point about independence too, that you were getting at. And one of the things that I was thinking about, like if I had a dollar for every time somebody at an organization that our company is working with told me that millennials now Gen Zers, right? Same thing. If they if I had a dollar for every time they complained, I would be a super rich man. (laughs) But my own experience has been quite the opposite. I have found both of those groups um, to be really hardworking, creative, Mm -hmm. loyal. But one of my firm beliefs is that like loyalty with is earned, particularly with millennials and Gen Zers. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the misconceptions that may exist is that loyalty should just instantly be granted. And, you know, I think about that example of the hall events and you're saying that they're fun. It's almost like you needed to demonstrate it to them, prove it to them, which can feel really hard because, you know, the older we are, the more the world tells us we're supposed to be wiser. And, uh, and, you know, we've got a generation that's coming up that is kind of rejecting that idea of wisdom. Um, How do you, in an environment like that, how do you work across different generations? You got to have thick skin sometimes, you know, with working with older generations, you know, like you said, I've I've heard it a thousand times too, you know, we're too self-absorbed. We don't have the capability of functioning without technology. We're viewed as a generation that killed critical thinking. And that can really get in the way when our coworkers we're meant to be collaborating with don't take us seriously or they brush our ideas in our work aside. And so and it's I so think- funny you say that because my experience has been critical thinking hasn't disappeared in those generations. It just happens a little faster sometimes mm-hmm. and it happens with the aid of technology. So it, some of them are actually able to do more. Yes. And that's what I think of having that thick skin of knowing, okay, my worth isn't in what these people say it is. I know what I'm capable of. And so, and this can be, you know, it depends on the organization. Sometimes, you know, there's that risk of there being serious backlash in the workforce or the workplace if you, you know, stand up, but just, you know, sticking up for that and knowing, no, we're going to collaborate. We were assigned on this team. You might brush off my ideas, but either way, if you don't, if you keep brushing it off, I'm going to go to the person who is our manager who assigned us to collaborate and let them know you're not being cooperative. You're not collaborating with like just knowing that I have their systems in place in the workforce. And at the end of the day, no one else is going to advocate for you except for yourself. You have to have that. You have to push forward. And that's one thing, again, I learned as a leader. Like, it's funny because I learned it as a leader, but it's more of a mindset of working with leaders is you have to be able to advocate for yourself or no one else is going to advocate for mm. you. I have to advocate for my hall as a leader, for my people as a leader, because they're still learning to do it. And at the, at, I'm their spokesperson. And so 
knowing that, like you, to your question of how I work within across generations, when I am that leader that's working with older generations, protecting the younger generations or the other generations on my team that they might not understand, I have to be the one that sticks up for them and lets them know they have quality work. It might look different than yours. That does not mean it's quality work. Just like Jason, you and I have had this conversation multiple times, you allowing me to kind of set the way that I work best because mm-hmm. that's the best work. That doesn't mean I'm any less, like I'm less hard of a worker. It just means I work differently and I still get the same. In fact, one of the hardest workers. (laughs) (laughs) It just might not be during the same hours that the person across the hall for me is, but like, I don't think anybody would question your uh, level of hard work, Mm -hmm. but I could also see to your point, I think some people who are more rigid or aren't Mm -hmm. looking at the whole person might say, okay, you know, and I, I, I'm obviously making this up. You want to work from eight to noon and then go off for a couple hours and then work till nine at night when you get back. They might look at that and, you know, be like, oh, that's somehow a lack of commitment. I think people need to value differences more. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, the older generation needs to realize that work isn't our life. That doesn't right. mean we're any less committed to our job. Like, okay. I'm very committed to furthering Goose Creek. But at the end of the day, like I said, you know, I, like I said, I have a very important work-life balance and that doesn't mean I value my job any less. It just means I also value other things and that's okay. And I think that's what this newer generation is realizing or what is now becoming more prevalent in the workforce is that it's okay to value other things other than your work. It's okay if I have to, like I had to step out of the office the other day to deal with a family issue and you were okay with that because you understood that this isn't the only thing that's important in my life, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. I think a part of it too is that where work exists in your life, you know, very much has to, to some extent do with, mm-hmm. do with your job. And sometimes people confuse hard work or hours is really, mm-hmm. they confuse hours with like hard work or they confuse it with productivity. But if, you know, I, I've always told my leadership team, I don't care if you take six months off in a year, just as long as you can do your job. Like if you can mm-hmm. somehow miraculously do it in five months, you know, like take the other. Let me know your secret because I'd love a six month break. Right. Exactly. Actually, we should change our business and start selling whatever that secret is. Exactly. Um, So, you know, and I, and I get what you're getting at in terms of like uh, really being able to appreciate those differences on Mm -hmm. not just a generational level. And maybe we're looking at the wrong thing when we're looking at generations. Maybe what we're, we're, we're really looking at here is looking at the individual person instead of sort of like broadly labeling and seeing what that person needs and seeing what that person can um, bring Mm -hmm. to the table. But, you know, as I say that, I'm going to ask you this question. Like (laughs) if you were sitting in front of, let's say, hundreds of HR professionals and hundreds of leaders and, you know, and you had an opportunity to sort of talk to them Mm because, you know, what do you think, A, the misconceptions, you know, are, you know, because there are a lot of sort of like simplistic portrayals of younger generations in the media. There are lots of armchair psychologists who are sort of like, I think they're getting in the way of sort of mm-hmm. leveraging the talent, the ideas, the approaches that we could all benefit from other generations. But, you know, what advice would you give to those HR professionals and those leaders about sort of getting the most out of our differences? Mm -hmm. I would just say, again, to set understanding, because similar to what you said, those misconceptions, it's all about perpetrating those misconceived stereotypes and not seeing us for the good and the bad. Like, you know, no generation's perfect. I'm not advocating just for the younger generations. There's the grayscale. Like, yes, we ask more questions, but look how many things we have changed because we stopped following processes. Yes, we finish our work before 3 p.m. That doesn't mean we're, we aren't hard workers or we're lazy. So I would just, the advice I would give is just listen to the needs of your people. Because yes, you have your clients and everything around you is changing. But if you're working for a team, focus internally on that team. Your people okay. are your clients. You can't lose fact, focus on, you know, I've seen companies do that where they preach something that they don't, they offer medicine and they preach stuff that they don't take themselves for their Mm. own. And so understanding that 
your people are just as much your clients as your customers. And it's funny you say that because one of the things you'll hear in the leadership development in, industry, the worst companies when it comes to leadership are in the leadership development mm. industry as they are teaching yeah. other people um, teaching other people to lead. So let me flip the flip that uh, question on you. You know, I asked about sort of like what advice would you give them? And you know, I think about you. You're relatively young for the position that you're in right now. You're mm -hmm. working consulting. You're giving advice to all sorts of older people. What what advice would you have for younger millennials and Gen Yers to be as successful as you've been as early as you have been in your career? I would give them that question. I'd say, don't stop asking for advice. Don't like. I think, um, like I said before, no generation's perfect. I know I've been advocating a lot for the younger generation now, but just because you do see things differently, don't assume it hasn't been tried before. Instead, ask advice on how it's been tried before, so you can avoid the same mistake and improve it in a different way. So that's you know, I was like a sponge growing up. I asked, I hung out all the time with my parents' friends. I'd ask them so many questions about their job what they did, how they did it. I wanted to see how things worked. And I think that led me to, you know, and especially being very hardcore humbled the first few months of my leadership of just realizing, ask questions, ask advice. The same mistakes that the older generations make out of, you know, being stuck in their way of not asking questions and not thinking, not fixing what's not broken. Mm. Don't assume that you know everything because you're coming with a new perspective. Ask advice to see how you can how you can use that new perspective in a way that hasn't been tried before. So some of this is really about mutual respect. Yes, everything, like everything. That's why I'll say like as a disclaimer, this isn't me just, you know, dumping on older generations saying that they're stuck in their ways constantly. I think there needs to be, if there's any change that's going to be done with fixing the divide between generations, it's got to come at people putting the pride at the door, all being uh, humble and knowing that they're, really are no big differences with the work that's done. It's just the time amount it's done and the way about it. But it doesn't mean that anyone, any one generation has a lack of work ethic, has a lack of hard work, critical thinking. Those things have been strong every generation. It's just how it looks that's different. But understanding that there is really no difference and you can learn from both. You can't just learn, you know. So as you were saying, just the best way to sum it up is mutual respect is yep. very much needed um, in order to, to go anywhere. I really like the advice you gave back for what people can do in both directions. Mm -hmm. But like one of my takeaways from listening to what you're saying is it's really about getting to this idea to some extent of paying more attention to the whole person. Yeah, definitely. Because I think with anything, with anything, any generation, there's always been some form of personality test there's been generational divides and it's all about putting people in boxes and mm. that just further creates a divide because we're we're not machines we're not made to be put in boxes you know i can i'm an introvert that has extrovert qualities i meet another introvert that has extrovert qualities we are two completely different people you know we we function different we get rest different so it's like just understanding and i see it so much with people putting their identity in their generations that closes them off from collaborating or understanding other generations, just realizing we're all people. We're all very different. Yeah. And also it prevents you from seeing your commonalities. Like mm -hmm. I take your point about you being introverted, right? And I'm the same way. Like you and I are decades apart, maybe in terms of age, but we actually probably have a lot more in common than we have that's different. We share similar values. We care about similar things. We have beliefs about the impact that leaders can have on um, society and fulfillment. And it's really interesting to think that this generational boxing really can be like a roadblock, a psychological roadblock to us seeing how much we have in common. Exactly. Yeah. I think like I said, each individual needs to put their pride at the door and realize they can learn from anyone, young or old. Well, thanks, Caitlin, for joining me. I really appreciate it. I wanted to ask if you had any sort of closing comments that, uh, that, that you'd like to share. I think that 
pretty much sums it up. Like I said, all generation, any leader, no matter where you are, leave your pride at the door and lead with an understanding of your people. Inspire that love of the sea. And thank you again for having me on your podcast. It's been great talking about this. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to having you back at some point soon. I really appreciate your perspective. I think it gave a lot of insight about sort of the importance of humility and pride, the importance of being able to sort of respect each other. And 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 on the pride part, putting that pride at the door and the humility, exerting it um, more. So I'm looking forward to having you back. And um, until then, take care of yourself. Yes, take care as well. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.